0: You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, we now come to uh, Psalm 28, uh, a wonderful psalm, though I think picking a favorite psalm out of 150. Uh, It's probably difficult, but Psalm 28 has been rewarding this week to be studying and meditating on it. And so we come now to uh, Psalm 28. And so hear these words of Holy Scripture. Psalm 28 of David. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Amen. Well, as we come to Psalm 28, uh, you'll remember that the book of Psalms, it's divided into four books. Sorry, it's divided into five books, just making sure you're paying attention this morning. It's divided into five books. and The first book, as we'll see throughout, as we've been going through it, uh, really seems to focus on David. Many of the Psalms are written by David, and it seems to be that there's this struggle of David as the Lord's anointed to rise to power as God's faithful king and Messiah. It seems around every corner there are are issues and things that David is having to deal with and that causes him to pray during those times. And it it is interesting to think of the many difficulties that he faced in his life while facing them as the one whom the Lord says, You will be my king. He had these promises of the Lord, yet his life was far from easy. And so we have these psalms where he is in distress. Everything has been stripped away from him, but he has the Lord. And at the end of the day for David, that is enough. And as we come to Psalm 28, it really seems to find itself in this little uh, unit of psalms from 26 to 32 that speak of God as a dwelling place for his people. Psalm 26 uh, spoke of needing to be innocent, meaning, needing to have your sins cleansed so that you could be in God's presence. Psalm 27 speaks of God as a stronghold and a dwelling place in his holy temple. Psalm 28, which we'll look at today, speaks of God as the one who answers prayers from his sanctuary and his temple in order to protect his people. And Psalm 29, which we'll look at uh, in the evening, uh, is this wonderful, really seems to, to form the center of this little unit where God is, is pictured as gloriously enthroned in his temple. And Psalm 30, interestingly, is a dedication to the future temple by David. It speaks of a God who rescues. And then 31 speaks of a God, again, as, as a refuge, a rock, and a fortress. Again, these themes we'll see in our, our psalm this, evening, uh, this morning of, of stability. And then Psalm 32 speaks of a God who forgives sins. And so is a hiding place and a refuge for the godly. So Psalm 26 through Psalm 32, they just seem to be hammering over and over and over this idea that God is the refuge. Not just for our souls, but for our bodies, for our entirety, for our life, that we can run to Him. And He is able to save. And so this morning, we're going to look at this psalm just in three parts, as, as really a model of prayer. Many of the psalms, I think, are just that. They're, they're, they're ways in which to teach us and fill up, really show how we can pray better. And so this psalm, we'll look at it as really the, the who, the what, and the how of prayer. The who of prayer, verses 1 through 2. The what, what we should be praying for, verses 3 through 5. And the how of prayer, how should we be praying Verses 6 through 9. Well, the who of prayer. Who are we to pray to? Sounds like a a Sunday school question. Right? We're to pray to God. This is what we've been seeing in the book of Hosea. Right? The problem that Israel was facing is that their prayers were really split. Many of them praying to, to Baal, worshiping Baal. Some maybe a remnant praying to the true God. But I like the way that David starts his prayer. His prayer is not directed to God in general. In Hebrew, the word Elohim, where we translate it as God. Rather, it's directed to the Lord in all capitals. You'll know it stands for Jehovah or Yahweh. The name that God has given that his people would know him. A name, his covenant name, that the name in which it signifies the way in which he's bound himself to his people. And so David starts this prayer by being reminded that he comes to a God who is already in relationship with him. Right, he is the one that we are to pray to, the only one that we should be praying to. And part of David's reasoning for that is, again, that reminder that there is a preceding relationship that's already been founded. And we see that when we pray the Lord's Prayer. right? The Lord's Prayer begins not with our God who is in heaven, But rather, it begins with our Father. The beginning of the prayer speaks about the fact that there's already a preceding relationship that existed prior to the prayer. The second thing that David is highlighting here at the beginning is that Yahweh is the only true God. And Again, coming back to Hosea, this was the problem that the Israelites, the northern tribe, were dealing with. They had had many gods in which they were praying to. But all of them... All of them were impotent. None of them could actually save them. None of them could even hear them. We can remember the way in which Hosea even mockingly says, "Right, they're walking out with their staff, their walking stick. And it says, my my walking stick gives me oracles. They were trusting in man-made things that couldn't accomplish anything. And again, actually, I take that back. It did accomplish one thing, which was to anger the Lord. It was idolatrous for them to pray to anyone other than the Lord. But David continues to, he says, I pray to you, O Lord. And then he speaks of the Lord as my rock. The first instance, actually, of this in the Psalms comes in Psalm 18. Again, probably my favorite psalm, speaking of this very specific way in which the Lord bends the heavens and comes down and rescues David. It's it's a thrilling account when you really read what it's referring to. And David here, seeing the Lord saving him. Really, I think David's looking back over his whole life and seeing the way in which the Lord has saved him countless times. David can then refer to God as, as his rock, right? The idea of firmness, hardness, stability. And again, think of David's life that he lived where everything around him was constantly in flux. Everything was changing. The world seemed to him as, as something that was completely hostile. It sounds a little bit like our world today. And yet in the midst of that, David has hope. We constantly see this theme cropping up in the Psalms of David's hope. And his hope is that he has someone who is like a fortress, like a stronghold, like a protector, someone who is his strength, someone who does save him. Countless times. And again, I, I think Psalms 26 through 32, they pick up on this theme. They want to be reminding us that the Lord is this stronghold. You can think of the most uh, protected uh, facility in the world. And the ways in which uh, intruders couldn't get in at all. It is completely protected. In the, in the United States, we used to think of Fort Knox where they stored all of the gold as this place that was impervious to be uh, broken into. I don't know if it ever was or or how it is today. But again, this theme that that the people who trust in the Lord are completely protected. And David will go on to speak of the Lord as a strength, as a fortress, as a rock against his enemies in in verses 3-5. through That really is that the Lord is, is fighting on his side. And the Lord is protecting him. And again, I think this is another foundational point that not only is there a prior relationship that bids us to come and pray, pray, but also we come to someone who is mighty and strong and able to save. And so it's this, that David comes into the presence of God and, and note the desperation that he has. I call to you, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. And verse two, hear The voice of my pleas. Interestingly, the word here in verse 2 is actually a command. David in his prayer, he's he's commanding the Lord to listen to him. I think of the ways in which Jesus speaks of prayer. Of the, the widow and the unjust judge or the neighbor coming at midnight. The themes that Jesus is saying in prayer is actually to be bold, almost in a sense, to be annoying. To constantly be coming to the Lord. Those with children probably remember when children are little. They do not seem to leave you alone. They're constantly knocking on doors where you've shut yourself in. They're constantly asking for things. They're constantly there. And thankfully they're cute and we love them, right? But that's what David is pictured here. He's, he's, He's coming into the presence of the Lord. He's commanding the Lord to listen to him. To hear his pleas. There's a desperation here. You can hear David as if he's saying, God, will you just please listen to me? Will you hear me? And the point is, is that David has realized throughout his life that it's only God and God alone who can hear and answer these prayers. And so David has no reason to go to anyone else because no one else can save to the extent that the Lord does. Right, and Throughout the, the scriptures, we see that God is the one who helps, the one who saves, the one who cares, and above all, the one who loves his people. Even in texts like Hosea, where the Lord is furiously angry at his people, it still shines through that he is like the spurned husband of a wayward wife, and yet he still loves his people and calls them back. And finally, we see David here in this first section. He's praying. And the way it's describing him as praying is that he's lifting up his hands and he's praying towards the most holy sanctuary. And again, this has actually occurred in uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. It speaks of uh, desiring men with holy hands to be lifting up their hands in prayer. And I think really the point here is not that we have to lift our hands up in order to pray, but there's, there's something here in David's prayer. This is not just a casual prayer, is it? There's a, a posture that he has. There's a desperation involved. You can see throughout that he is basically saying, if you don't help me, I am doomed. I am doomed if you do not help me. Because I become like those who go down to the pit. You need to hear, and you need to act, and you need to help. And David is also, he's praying towards the sanctuary. Towards your most holy sanctuary. Now, I don't think this is some kind of magical incantation. I don't think David believes that if he prays to Jerusalem, his prayers are more holy than if he just prays in the desperation of the night. I think what David is saying here, though, is that praying to Jerusalem is a way in which he is being reminded almost sacramentally of what the Holy of Holies, because the word here, Holy Sanctuary, could be really speaking of the Holy of Holies. That what David is doing, he's praying towards the holy place, because it's that place out of all the earth that reminds him that this is where God meets with man. That the Lord dwells in the midst of his people, And so for David, this is a further reminder of the reasons he has to trust in the Lord. It's a remembrance for him that God indeed does dwell with his people. And as we think, we we, we transition this to today. The, The beauty of what David is saying here maps perfectly when we come to the New Testament. Because we don't pray to any geographical location. There's actually no place that's really... Holy. There's not holy places as if the Holy Spirit dwells in geographical locations like some geocaching game. We have to find him. That's that's not what the New Testament speaks. The New Testament does speak about our need to pray towards the most holy sanctuary. But we know in the New Testament that the, the, the sanctuary, the, the Holy of Holies, was just a shadow of something greater. That it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he said he was the true temple. And in that three days, he would tear it down and rebuild it, meaning his life and his death. The book of Hebrews is wonderful in the way in which it pulls out the ways in which Jesus is our last and great high priest. Hebrews speaks about the ways in which Jesus, though he's seated at the right hand of the Father, though his work of atonement is done, it doesn't mean that his job is done in terms of continually being a priest for us. The Bible speaks about the ways in which he is constantly interceding for us, even today. I think of the ways in which Jesus spoke to Peter. If I hadn't prayed for you, the devil sought to sift you, but I prayed for you. Or Jesus' high priestly prayer in John speaks about not just praying for those in front of me, but for all who would trust in me. And so here David doesn't know it, but he's, he's looking forward to a greater time a time when he would be able to pray through the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that here is the long-awaited fulfillment of his true son that would reign forever of Psalm 72, this true priest. And if you think about the confidence that David had, think about the ways in which David's prayer here, I think sounds better than many of the prayers that I've prayed. And yet he saw just dimly, what God would do. He, what he knew was so much smaller than what you and I know now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if David has this great confidence, what should our prayers be like? I mean, many of my prayers, they feel cold <laughs> But then I think that the flip side of it is that we, we can fall into this trap as if we, we're, we're desiring some mystical experience. And that's, again, the, neither of these are the point of prayer. What we see in David's life, he's not searching for holy feelings and warm fuzzies. Right? David is, is desperate and he's coming to the Lord as someone who is obedient and trusting. And these would be things that should be categorizing our prayers. And so this, this first section, these first two verses, they, they just remind us that it's the Lord alone we pray to. I mean, we think of that as a no-brainer, but it's worth being reminded of that, that there's a, a prior relationship that bids us to come and pray to him. But the second thing is, is that we should certainly have greater confidence than David to pray as those who are praying through and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that brings us to the, the second section here, the, the, the what of prayer. What are we supposed to be praying for? What do we ultimately, what, what focuses our prayers? If you could pick one item, what is the, the one item that we, we should be and, and generally actually are praying for? In verses 3 through 5, I think it answers it, that ultimately all of our prayers really flow into the idea of, of salvation, of being saved. Let everything, I think, flows out of a desire to be saved and in relationship to God. Whether that's prayers for, for physical healing, prayers for others, prayer for the advance of the kingdom, prayer that enemies would be stopped. All of those, I think, could fit under the rubric of praying for salvation. And we see that in verse 3 in David's request. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. And certainly we should be praying for our souls. You know, obviously we desire to be with God, to have everlasting life as opposed to everlasting death and separation. But we also, we pray for salvation in an earthly sense. There really is evil in this world. David is constantly reminding us that he is not just facing spiritual warfare and spiritual battles, though he is. But he's facing real uh, physical earthly problems. And so there's this desire, this need that he does, that he has to pray that the Lord would be saving him. And again, we come back to the concluding line of the Lord's Prayer. What does it say? Deliver us from evil or from the evil one. I think also in David's request here, there's a prayer for the salvation from our sins. Because notice the ways in which David here is speaking of being saved from the wicked, but there's clearly an ethical bent to what he's talking about. right? The, the wicked are, are those who deny God's law, who work against God's law. They are the workers of evil. They're deceptive and hypocritical. They speak peace to their neighbor while they harbor and have evil in their heart. David in Psalm 26 and Psalm 32 Speaks of the need to be cleansed, to be made holy so that he may come into God's presence. He, de- he desires to be holy. And finally, I think we, we pray for the salvation of others. We'll see that at the end here where David's prayer goes from a prayer that he is praying. And then verses 8 and 9 really widen it out to the whole community. And again, we can think of the ways in which through the Lord Jesus Christ we're brought into something greater than just our individual salvation. But also David is praying for God's justice and judgment. Verse 4, give them according to their work. Basically, comeuppance. (laughs) David is praying that all of the evil that they're doing would finally come back upon them. And again, think of the ways in which we confess our faith in the Apostles' Creed. It it speaks of Jesus who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Or think of John's prayer at the end of Revelation that we will sometimes remember but maybe forget what it fully means. John says, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And what is he asking? Well, all throughout Revelation, it's this idea that the Lord Jesus would come back, not as a lamb, but as a lion, to judge and to save his people. The saints are pictured as those who are, are, are asking the Lord constantly. When will you bring justice? And here I think the Psalms help us and, and remind us that this need for justice is something that we should be praying. And we see too the ways in which judgment is about recompense. The way that if you work evil, evil will come back upon you. The scripture is is full of this, this idea that either in this life or in the next, that workers of evil will find judgment. That all who are evil, all who are wicked, that the Bible constantly splits these two apart. That there's those who are righteous and those who are wicked. This is Psalm 1 all over again. But here, moving from Psalm 1, which seems to move these two groups and say these are the two groups that exist, Psalm 28 seems to be pushing it to its logical conclusion that the righteous will dwell with God in His sanctuary forever. The wicked will face His wrath. And then finally, in verse 5, David gives us the ultimate cause of wickedness. The, The root of wickedness is because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hand. And so he will tear them down and build them up no more. The the wicked are those who do not know that God is holy, that he has a standard. They they do not know that he is a God who is mighty, who is able to save. These are are, are those who do not remember, if they're Israelites, the, the great events of the Exodus or the ways in which God created all things out of nothing, that he is powerful, he is mighty. And David constantly is reminding us through the Psalms, he's also holy. God cannot dwell with wickedness. The wicked act as if God doesn't exist. They, they seek to tear down God's works. Or David speaks of that, there will come a time when all of it will come crashing down upon them. It's like Babel all over again. And it will never be rebuilt. And David here really is, is reminding himself that the wicked cannot stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Well, I think that brings us to the end here, verses six through nine, the how of pray, of prayer. All right, we know who to pray for, to God. We know what to pray for, for salvation. So how do we get to pray? I think that that's what Psalm 28 should really drive us to, is to be those who are praying. And so remember, the the petitions that David starts off with in verses 1 through 2, there's a real request he's bringing to the Lord that the Lord would help. But notice how swiftly David moves to thanksgiving in verses 6 and the end of verse 7. And think about how many psalms are just psalms that David and others are rejoicing that the Lord has heard their prayers and answered. And again, it's at least something I need to be reminded of. How much of our prayers are just focused on thanking the Lord for His kindness and His mercy? Right, if God were to just lay out all of my prayers and categorize them into different categories, how much of them would be me returning in thankfulness to the Lord? I actually don't want to think about that. I think I would be ashamed if I were to see how much of my prayers, or how little of my prayers are prayers of thanksgiving. But the second thing David teaches us, so that Thanksgiving is an integral part of prayer. The second thing that he's teaching us is that true biblical prayer, the beginning of verse seven, is all about trust. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my help. In him, my heart trusts, and I am helped." Think of the way that James puts it. He, he speaks of that you have not because you ask not. Because you trust not, to paraphrase probably badly what James is getting at. But ultimately James is is showing that a, a lack or a problem in the life of prayer is that we don't trust God as who he is. A loving father who delights to give good gifts. And David here is in the midst of so many difficulties. These are not platitudes to make him feel better. For David these are truths that get him through the darkest times, that the Lord is his strength and his shield. It it sounds as if it's active and passive. The Lord empowers him to do what he needs to do. Psalm 18, verses 34 through 42, speaks of the way in which David proclaims that the Lord is the one who has fitted him and made him ready for battle, had strengthened him, but also he is the one who has protected David and who delivers. In Psalm 18, verses verse 43, Again, it comes back to this theme of a rock and a fortress that God protects. David also speaks of prayer as something that is is our whole being. An endeavor that involves all of us. Our whole mind, body, heart, and soul. He uses the word heart here. Not to mean his feelings, but mean the totality of the inner person. His very soul is engaged in this prayer. And it gives rise, again it gives rise to thanksgiving, to songs of praise. You know, prayer isn't all about feeling. But feelings are important to prayer. Prayer should cause us to feel. They should cause us to love more. Our hearts should regularly be stirred with what God has done in the past, is doing now throughout the world, and what he's doing for his worldwide kingdom should regularly stir our hearts. And honestly, I think anecdotally at least, this is why we get so distracted in prayer. It's spiritual warfare. Satan would like nothing more than for our prayers to be meandering and wandering and unfocused. You know, sometimes I think the best way to fall asleep at night is to start praying. And you wake up 15 minutes later kind of trying to figure out what you were doing. Praying is hard. Don't let anyone tell you any differently. It is very difficult. It takes work. Just like anything good, it takes uh, takes time to work on. It takes time to develop that trust. And it takes time to really feed our souls. One of the things that I think really helped me out is that Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very famous uh, pastor, he said that for him, when he goes to pray, he often has to read the Puritans in order to reignite his cold heart. And for me, that was encouraging that this, this man who is uh, so uh, uh, famous and so uh, important in the life of the church felt that his prayers needed help. That he needed it to be encouraged. That he needed his heart to be stirred so that he could come into the presence of the Lord. That for him, it was a struggle And lastly, David reminds us that prayer is a corporate affair. Uh, Verses 8-9. through It's wonderful that this transition happens in this. Because I think that this uh, psalm highlights the incredible important part of prayer. That it's an individual exercise. Oftentimes. And there's nothing wrong with that. Indeed, the first seven verses of Psalm 28 are speaking about individual prayer. Mm -hmm. But... It doesn't end there. It doesn't doesn't stop with just David concerned with himself. Verses 8 through 9. Move it out into the, the corporate body. And again, we can come back to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not my Father who art in heaven, but our Father. And that's why we confess and why we say it together as a church. Our Father who is in heaven, meaning all of us together are engaged together in prayer. And so we, we do. We are commanded to be praying individually. But I think we, we need to be reminded at the end of prayer is this, this reminder that Psalm 28 is, is, is pushing us to see that in the Messiah, in God's anointed one, you can see in verse 8, he's a saving refuge of his anointed. In his anointed one, the individual, suddenly the corporate, are all brought in together together. That even in the life of David, if David was blessed, the people prospered. That when it went well for the king, it went well for the people. And again, as we move into the New Testament to see David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came not in order to save a person, but to save a people. And then to take these independent people and move them into a corporate body, the body of Christ. And so I think it's helpful to be reminded of the corporate nature of prayer. And then finally, David ends in verse 9. That helps us to remember to be praying bigger than we normally pray. O oh, Savior, people, bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forevermore. Again, we should not neglect praying for ourselves as if praying for the corporate body of Christ and for the kingdom is, is against praying for ourselves and our concerns that we need. They're both to be put together. But oftentimes, I find that there's a balance that can get lost where it's all about the individual. And David wants to, to highlight, and, and the book of Psalms really pushes this theme forward, that our prayers have cosmic significance. And David here wants us to be praying in, in, in a way in which we're looking at the greater kingdom of God. And so in this psalm, we see supplication, petitions, thanksgiving, wholehearted prayer for ourselves and for the advance of Christ's kingdom. And actually, unlike David, we have the assurance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of, I almost wonder, what would David's prayers look like now? What would David's prayers look like now that he is in heaven? He is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands all that God's plan and unfolding of what he was doing. What would his prayers look like today? And so Psalm 28 as we close this morning. I think it's a model prayer. I think it would do well for all of us to come back to this, to use it as a help for children as you're learning to pray. Come back to Psalm 28 memorize it, sing it, let it become a part of us so that when we have times where we don't know what to pray, we can turn to Psalm 28 and be given inspired words to come into the presence of the Lord. But I think also with Psalm 28, let us just not miss the way in which this psalm ultimately has to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm is unfulfilled, as it were, until the, the, the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. That it is through him we see the ways in which our prayers are effective. In ways that David never knew. In Christ we know that our sins are forgiven. Not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of the eternal Son of God. That we may now come into God's presence, holy and cleansed with his righteousness. In Christ, we come now as those who are adopted children to a God that we can call Father. If you search the Psalms, David never calls God Father. I don't know that for certain. I'm making an educated guess here. But right, he speaks of God as the Lord of the covenant promises. He doesn't speak of him as a father who has adopted him into his family. And I love the way that Paul speaks of it in the book of Ephesians, that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. That God planned before we were born that we would be adopted and brought into his family. We pray as well in Christ through the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying us and preparing us for a glorious future. Again, Paul highlights that, that the Spirit, even when we don't know what to pray, cries out for us. You can think of the the wonderful picture that the New Testament paints of prayer, that there's the Father in heaven who we are now His sons through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that in the power of the Spirit, He sanctifies and lifts our prayers to the very throne room. And that once they reach the throne room, there's the Lord Jesus Christ with nail-pierced hands taking our prayers to a loving Father and saying, Father, these are mine. This is the picture that the New Testament gives us of what prayer is. And so in Christ, right, we come knowing that Jesus is regularly and continually making intercessions for us. And that should give us all the hope in the world. And it should give us an impetus to be people who are constantly in prayer. And so hear these words. Let us work diligently at prayer, knowing we have every hope in the world to do so. Amen. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk for more.